This week on the Backtable Podcast. So I pulled out a uh, 10 millimeter uh, wall stent, passed the colopinto needle into the hepatic vein, turned it anteriorly, and jabbed the liver about uh, an inch and a half and got blood back and puffed, and I was in the portal vein. Put a wire down and then advanced a balloon catheter through the colopinto catheter, ballooned the tract, put a wall stent in, did another injection in the portal vein, and all the flow was going through the stent. That was the most exciting moment in my professional career. I mean, here I had created a vessel where none existed. All of the varices that had been filling on the preliminary injection in the portal vein disappeared, and all the flow was going through the stent. It was just magic. I couldn't wait to call everybody I knew. Welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Maureen Kogi, and I'll be your guest host today. This episode is brought to you by Boston Scientific. Boston Scientific has just released the legacy study data confirming Therosphere as a new adjuvant or standalone therapy in treating HCC. 98.6% of patients responded with just one treatment as Therosphere with 93% overall survival at three years. Visit bostonscientific.com forward slash legacy to learn more. Today, we have an excellent episode lined up. Our special guest today is Dr. Ernie Ring, joining us from his lovely home in Northern California. We will be getting into a bit of the history of interventional radiology because today's podcast is in the honor of the 50th anniversary of the Western Angiographic and Interventional Society. It is a particular honor for me because not every day do you get to interview your role model and idol. And that has been Ernie Ring since the day I started interventional radiology as a fellow at UCSF. So Ernie, thank you for joining us. And I wanted to just jump right in and have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, your experience. What inspired you to become an interventional radiologist and who were your mentors? It's a pleasure to be here and, and talking about my favorite subject, interventional radiology. I started radiology itself 50 years ago. Uh, my residency began in 1970 at the Mass General Hospital. And at the beginning of the second year of my residency, Dr. Stanley Baum joined the faculty at MGH. And I can still remember where I was sitting when he gave a talk on the use of the angiographic catheter to treat bleeding. And he showed all these cases of angiogram showing extravasation and then infusions of a vasoconstricting drug to clamp down the vessel and stop the bleeding. And I thought to myself, wow, if this guy's telling the truth, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And two months later, I was on rotation on uh, what was called angio back then. And within the first month, we had a patient who was bleeding from uh, her pelvis after a car accident. She'd bled over 60 units of blood. Uh, the surgeon had operated three times, he said, and each time it just released the tamponade. And he said, do what you've been doing. Do what you can to stop bleeding 
I doubt it'll work because pelvic bleeding is always venous, but see if you can do something on an angiogram. So I was on a call that night. I called Stan Baum. He came in and I did a pelvic aortogram. And sure enough, there was massive extract from the right internal iliac artery. We uh, catheterized the internal iliac and infused vasopressin, which is the only thing we knew how to do to stop bleeding, into the internal iliac, and it had no effect whatsoever. And Stan started thinking of ways that we could stop this bleeding, and eventually I actually said to him, how about some blood clot? And so we took about 50 cc's of her blood out, put it in a metal basin, and watched it for about 30 minutes, not remembering that after 60 units of bleeding, blood doesn't clot. And so we, Stan sent me to a laboratory where they were investigating thrombin. I got a vial of thrombin, poured it into the, this little bucket, got a sterile tongue blade, stirred it around, and it became a solid. And Stan took, uh, 30 cc syringe, filled it with this goo and injected it all into the internal iliac artery. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, up to that point, he had taught me never let uh, the smallest air bubble go in. It would infarct whatever was on the end of it. And here he was injecting 30 cc's of clot into the internal iliac. Repeated the angiogram. The internal iliac was completely blocked. She stopped bleeding. And while we expected all these terrible things to happen, that her rectum would slough, that her uterus would fall out, that her bladder would infarct, that the skin on her tush would uh, necrose, nothing bad happened. She just stopped bleeding. And I thought, this is pure magic. To be able to do something that can't even be done surgically with an angiographic catheter I was sold completely, and I spent the rest of my residency with Stan. Even when I was on other rotations, I'd see every case that was done. Howard Waltman was a fellow that year and, and was just a joy to work with. And I had the uh, opportunity to, to scrub in on, at least, one of the first diverticular bleeds ever treated angiographically, one of the first gastritis ever treated with uh, vasopressin, and it was just like opening the door to what I could only imagine was going to become a phenomenal field. I then spent my, uh, my year as chief resident uh, at Mass General solely doing angiography. Then I got sent to the U.S. Navy in Puerto Rico for two years where I didn't have a single angiogram. I didn't put a catheter at anybody. And in the meanwhile, Baum had moved to become chairman at Penn, and he couldn't find anybody who wanted to take over the angiographic service there. And boy, was I anxious to get back to working with him. And he offered me the job. I'd never been to Philadelphia before. And I, I moved, took my family. We moved up to University of Pennsylvania where I was greeted by a surgery department that couldn't wait to find new ideas for me. They, they kept looking for different ways we could use catheters. I, I was lucky enough to have my second year there, Dr. Anders Lundequist come as visiting professor, 
for a year. And Anders had developed a transhepatic technique for catheterizing the portal vein and embolizing varices. And he taught me how to do it. We actually did 19 patients that year. 18 of them died. And I got up in front of surgical grand rounds and informed them that that I did not want my name affiliated with a procedure that had the mortality of an airplane crash. And we got to stop doing this. But that was my first involvement in in portal hypertension. We had been doing some uh, infusions into the superior mesenteric artery to reduce blood flow before that. But actually getting into the portal vein was something that uh, Lunderquist taught us. The surgeons brought me a case one day. He said, you know, it can't be that different to manipulate in a dilated bile duct. I have a patient who's deeply jaundiced and I can't operate on her. Could you put a catheter in? This was before the, the 1976 Food and Drug Administration rules came in. And I thought, sure, why not? Nothing else helping her. So I did a transhepatic, hit the bile duct initially, put a wire down, and the wire popped across an obstruction into the duodenum, which I thought was magic at the time. I thought obstructions actually were obstruction. And I put in a, a catheter with side holes, drained the bile, the jaundice went away. And from then on, I began getting these referral of complicated biliary cases and we were able to do more and more things. It turned out the first catheter I put in was just a straight catheter, an aortic catheter for, with a few side holes in it. The liver moves up and down, and a buckle forms between the liver and the lateral abdominal wall, and in short order, a catheter pops out of the, the bile duct. So we had these catheters that Julie Grolman had designed for pulmonary angiography. Julie was one of the founders of the Western Angio. And I thought, okay, that's got a nice tight right angle band or the pigtail. Maybe that'll hold up at the ampulla. So I put that in. It stayed in place, put a, punched a bunch of extra side holes in it and eventually capped it so that the bile could flow into the patient. The catheter didn't fall out, and really a whole opportunity developed to start treating biliary obstruction in a novel way. As you were doing these procedures on the liver, and this is something that you've taught me and so many others, were you ever worried about bleeding or complications? What is it about the liver that you quickly realized that led you to, to these discoveries? And how did that start the whole journey towards tips? Well, I had learned from Lunderquist that the, the portal vein could be punctured percutaneously, even in patients with ascites. And bleeding really didn't happen. The liver, being what it is, being semi-elastic, it closed when you pulled out of a, a, a vein. And arteries were small and difficult to stick. And I only did cases that had no alternatives, that the surgeons had said, I, I, can't, I can't operate on this patient with a bilirubin of 25. 
or I have no operation I can do and the patient is itching profoundly. So we discussed the risks and the fact that we, we really didn't know, we only suspected that it would be safe with the surgeon and the patients and went ahead and did it. And I've learned over the last uh, many years that the liver is truly my friend. It tolerates almost all the abuse I can put it through. And it only rarely uh, does it bleed. And if it bleeds from an artery, I know how to fix that uh, by catheterizing the hepatic artery and embolizing it. That's right. And so at this point, I'd love to for everybody else to hear about the discovery of TIPS. And for me, it's a magical procedure. And I think it still is a magical procedure, even though we do it with ultrasound or ice guidance. But to be able to watch Arnie Ring do a first puncture into the portal vein and deploy a stent within 15 minutes is, is truly magic. And I've had the luxury of seeing that. So tell us a little bit about how TIPS got started and what things were like at UCSF at that time. Well, as, as, as you know, TIPS was first conceived of by Joseph Roche in the late 80s and further developed by Ron Colapinto using a balloon to expand the track. None of that remained patent. Joseph did it in, in animals. Colapinto did it in humans. And I had thought about it a great deal. We were working closely with our liver transplant surgeons they had a huge problem of patients on the list for livers, but unable to wait that long because of recurrent bleeding. And I had talked to various people, especially Julio Palmas, about the possibility of it. And he had done some in dogs himself using the stent that he had developed and eventually went over to Germany to work with uh, Getz Richter. And they did the first two tips with stents on, in humans. They did not have a lot of liver experience. They weren't biliary radiologists so much as vascular radiologists. And they, each of the first two cases took over 10 hours. Actually, Getz came over to Miami Vascular and did a case with Barry that similarly took 10 hours. Now, I know the liver, and I know the liver doesn't react badly if you pass a big needle through it. And especially a cirrhotic liver, which is hard. You need a liver with a needle with some authority. And I conceived of TIPS as being a transhepatic procedure done from the top instead of from the side. Coming out of the hepatic vein with a needle comparable to the five French uh, needle sheath that I'd been using to drain bile ducts. And I had on my shelf these colopinto needles that were designed to do biopsies, but were terrible biopsy needles. Uh, but they were big and they had big, stiff needles, 18-gauge needles in them. And when I talked to Julio after he came back from doing these cases, he, he told me what he had done. He told me that it worked. He, he told me how long it took. And I talked to our... Uh, transplant surgeon, John Roberts, about the possibility of trying one of his difficult cases, one of the patients who had continued to bleed 
they didn't really didn't want to do a standard a surgical shunt on her and we talked to her and told her that this was a novel procedure that might work to stop her bleeding and i pulled off the shelf a colopinto needle at the time wall stents had just been approved for biliary use and they seemed to have the shape that i thought i wanted rather than the straight stiff stents that uh, palmas was making so i pulled out a uh, 10 millimeter uh, wall stent passed the colopinto needle into the hepatic vein turned it anteriorly and jabbed the liver about uh, an inch and a half and got blood back and puffed and I was in the portal vein. Put a wire down and then advanced a balloon catheter through the colopinto catheter, ballooned the track, put a wall stent in, did another injection in the portal vein and all the flow was going through the stent. That was the most exciting moment in my professional career. And here I had created a vessel where none existed. All of the varices that had been filling on the preliminary injection in the portal vein disappeared and all the flow was going through the stent. It was just magic. I couldn't wait to call everybody I knew. And then turns out that there were a lot of people who uh, were in a similar position and we did a hundred cases the first year and I reported our results with the first hundred patients and even blind and even with the occasional puncture through the capsule, it proved to be a remarkably safe procedure that could be done in, in most cases in uh, under a couple of hours and was tolerated well. It had all of the functionality of a surgical side-to-side shunt. It was effective for ascites. But it also had all of the uh, downsides of a surgical shunt in that patients developed encephalopathy, but bleeding stopped, ascites went away, and an alternative uh, to surgical shunt decompression was clearly something interventional radiology could do. A surgeon who won't be named came to the NIH consensus uh, panel that was held on it and essentially called me a liar for claiming that this could be done, that it worked, that it was effective. He had spent his whole life uh, doing portacable shunts, and that was a pretty exciting moment for me to be able to put my data up there and show how effective the shunt was uh, and how you could actually control the size depending on uh, the size stent you used. And for massive portal hypertension, you could even put a double shunt in uh, between two hepatic veins and the right and left uh, portal vein. So we did a lot of cases and they went unbelievably well. Eventually it got approved and it, it's been going on ever since. Now you guys use ultrasound, which I sort of think of as cheating. I, I couldn't agree more. I Every moment that I puncture the portal vein with ice guidance, I, I feel like I'm doing something wrong because I'm a ring fellow, but it does make the procedure even, even that much shorter. But to that end, you know, it's a good time to talk about, you know, as you learned more about tips and the discovery of how to optimize it with better tools, 
the covered stand, things like that. What part of, you know, sharing this knowledge was most rewarding? Or maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, I think one of the best parts of IR is the connections we make, not just in our department, but nationally, internationally. And you have been such an incredible role model of how you can bring new ideas to different parts of the world and also learn from them. So tell us a little bit about that. I'd be glad to. You know, along with what we were doing, Joseph Roche at Oregon was doing, began doing tips with a different technique, with a much smaller needle, but with the same results and the same kind of effective decompression. And we had a, for years, sort of a, a gentle competition over which technique was the best. But our most uh, exciting collaboration was in Asian countries. As you know, there's a lot of liver disease in Korea, Japan, China. And I had the opportunity to go over to all, all those countries and do live cases, scrubbing with interventional radiologists who are just beginning to learn catheter techniques and have technology to do procedures. And I remember one year, Barry Katzen and I had a bus tour of, of Korea where we went to all these little hospitals and he talked about peripheral vascular disease and, and what could be done with that. And I talked about biliary and uh, tips procedures. And I went to a little hospital in Taegu, which was not terribly well equipped, but I thought, okay, this is great. I hope he can find a way to do it. Two years later, I was at the uh, inaugural meeting of the Asian Pacific SIR, where they had me talking about tips as the uh, keynote address. And the radiologist at this hospital in Taegu followed me with a presentation of 50 cases that he had done. So it was really a, a, a great part of my academic career to go to places like that, as well as some of the great hospitals in Singapore and Hong Kong, Shanghai and Beijing to do cases there, to, to demonstrate the technique, to talk about uh, the steps that I routinely took to make the procedure go as smoothly as possible and to see the radiologists there pick up on the techniques so quickly and, and provide the, the same kind of services that we could provide in the U.S. Thank you. I think that that's one of the most rewarding things, you know, to, to continue giving and educating. I think you have a lot of great slogans, and I think something that I always remember is you saying we train our own competition. But, but you definitely have trained a lot of folks in academics and private practice. What, you know, what kept you going in academics for so long, you know, year after year, starting afresh with new trainees, teaching them, being as patient as you can? Tell us a little bit about the education side. There's nothing more fun than teaching uh, young doctors how to do what you do. It also keeps you young. You know, when you work with 29-year-old and 30-year-old people every year, you begin to forget how old you are. You seem like one of them. And then suddenly you see your first fellow and he's got a white beard and white hair. And you realize how many years have gone by. But 
I've had such a phenomenal opportunity to train some of the smartest people. Whatever, whatever contribution I made, the fact that I, I talked Michael Dake out of becoming a chest radiologist and into becoming an interventional radiologist is probably the single greatest accomplishment in my career. There's nothing more fulfilling than to know that you, you help launch a career as, as fine as his, as well as yours and, and so many others, Roy Gordon, Gordon McLean, so many, three, four a year for, for many, many years. You know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day when I was a fellow, when my co-fellows and I, when we would be on with Ernie, we'd have to We'd have to make sure that we would beat him into the room. You know, the other attendings would be in their offices and we'd have to let them know we were doing a case or we're starting a case. But with Ernie, if you weren't scrubbed in, as soon as the patient got into the room, he was going to do the case. And, and so it definitely taught us to be on our toes. So really great memories. I, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about the history of Western Angio now. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Western Angio is an older society than the Society of Interventional Radiology. So there's a little bit more history there. And being on the West Coast and having been a past president of, of Western Angio, would love to hear your stories and what got all of that started. So I was an Eastern guy when I first started. There was an Eastern Angio Society in Boston, New York, uh, Baltimore that met every year. And there was very little communication across the country. I mean, I knew that Dodder existed, but I'd never met him. We were working with people from Yale, Hopkins, and the New York hospitals lecturing to each other on techniques. And when I moved here, to San Francisco in 1982, that was the first time I had met many of the people who are of the Western Angio. It was mostly Southern California docs, uh, Julie Grohlman being quite prominent, but also Charles Dodder and Joseph Roche and, and Fred Keller from, from Oregon, all of whom were the pioneers on the West Coast, had a different approaches to many things than the East Coast people. Herb Abrams had started one form of angio when he was at Stanford using techniques that he had learned in Sweden. But Charles had his own techniques and they influenced a lot of the West Coast people in throughout California, Oregon, and, and, and Washington. And how did the, the Western Angio Society form? Because uh, that's formed a little before S SCDIR, right? Right. It was begun as kind of the, the anti-graphic wing of the uh, LA Radiologic Society that then kind of expanded up the coast and included everything all the way up to Oregon and, and Washington. What are some stories about Western Andrew that you could share with us, it being the 50th anniversary? Uh, there must have been some, some stuff going down that maybe we can hear about now that so much time has gone by. Well, it was friends and competitors getting together in nice places once a year. And it was the off-lecture uh, site conversations, I think, that were the most productive. 
getting to know what somebody else was really doing was not something you could get when people didn't lecture on sort of the the things that they had tried that didn't work. They only, only good news was generally presented. And so folks from all over, from all the universities and private practitioners were doing things and they were all doing them a little differently. And at the Western Angigo, you, you kind of say, oh yeah, is that how you did that? Maybe I'll try that. So the field was new enough that, that it was social. Uh, very social, a great opportunity to have a, a glass of bourbon and, and meet your counterparts, which were really hard to picture today that people were not in a position to communicate. The literature is, is where you learn the, about what was going on and not talking to your counterparts. And with the Western Angio and the Eastern Angio and then eventually the SIR, it opened up to where you got to know them. You got to know who was telling fibs about what they were doing, who was telling uh, about only their best cases, and who was the most reliable as far as what they could do and what disasters they'd caused. And without mentioning names, you got a chance to learn what you should try and what was dangerous, what wasn't dangerous. That seems so obvious today because we all get together and, and uh, see each other uh, at meetings and, and panels and people share experiences honestly and openly, I think, at, at meetings now. But it took kind of a social structure like developed at the Western Angio to learn. God, I remember Dodder at a meeting when angioplasty was quite new. He uh, was talking about how he did iliac angioplasty, and he said he just put a balloon up in the aorta, blew it up to eight millimeters, and pulled it down. And I almost fell off my chair when I heard them say that, but it was never anything I was going to try. But it did make me realize that angioplasty was, in fact, a lot safer than, than I ever imagined. Right. I think that that culture that you're describing is what makes a uh, Western Angio such a unique meeting and, and so special. And I think, you know, the ability to be able to, as you said, be in a social environment and kind of laid back and sit in an auditorium and, and see the giants of the field just, you know, in shorts and and the t-shirt, you know, giving their incredible talk. And so I, 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 for me, you know, that's been one of the most remarkable parts of the meeting, as well as the, you know, the learning and the social part. I think, I think something that I wanted to talk about is, you know, as you've seen the field develop, looking back, you know, what are some of the things that are striking to you? I mean, you discussed how you guys thought it was a good idea to put thrombin in blood and inject it into somebody, you know, that's something that we just can't do these days. You know, even if we think it's a great idea, there's so much regulatory. I'll tell you just as a side note, uh, the, the funniest Ernie Ring, one of the funniest Ernie Ring stories, we had done a pay, we'd put in a, a, a left-sided biliary drain in, in somebody and the patient had come in for a, a just a PTBD check exchange and I was scrubbed in, I was a fellow. And Ernie immediately noticed on the injection that the left and the right 
systems were disconnected. And so he said, you know, we, we got to drain the right side. The patient was sedated and everything and consented for just the biliary drain. So he turns and he's like, prep, prep the right side. And I was like, Ernie, we can't do that. You know, the regulations are so, so restrict these days, even though you clearly know this patient needs to undergo right-sided biliary drainage placement. You, you have to take time and call their next of kin, get anesthesia, things like that. So even procedurals, procedural steps have changed so much. So just would love to hear your reflection on that. I was happened to be lucky enough to be there when it was all starting. And at a time when the FDA's oversight over catheters was catheters had to be accurate up to one French size. It was all their regulations were designed to make sure that Foley's were actually 18 French or 16 French. They had no idea about what we were about to do and what was actually going on. 1976 is when the, the laws were passed, but it was probably 82 or 83 before they actually started enforcing it. So in a case like you're describing, I, I would not have done the right-sided drainage if I hadn't injected the left duct and not seen the right duct. But by injecting the left duct and filling it with contrast on the right side through a partial obstruction, it was clear to me the patient was going to get septic unless we did something soon. So I would still go ahead and do that. If I thought it was in the best interest of the patient that, I, that not to wait until sepsis came to get that thing drained, I'd, I'd go ahead and do it. And when I consent people, I tell them what I'm planning on doing and then tell them that things could happen that might change that. Right. You know, I, I have another great Ernie Ring story for everybody. This, I was a resident at the time. And Ernie and I were tasked to go up to the floor to remove a tunnel dialysis catheter out of a patient in the ICU. And I don't know if Ernie remember this, but, you know, we, we felt that it was a lot more um, efficient to go up and bring all our stuff and then remove the line. And I hadn't done IR at this point for a year. So I just come back as one of my first days uh, back from diagnostics and so I was cleaning and I was numbing up and I was just very slow. And I remember just turning around for a second, just one second to grab some gauze. And before I knew it, the, the entire line was out. And it just taught me that, again, you got to be quick and nimble with that. And it taught me to be efficient. Tell us a little bit about your, your finger strengths, Ernie. I don't think the world knows your abilities with your with your hand. I think you need to share a little there. Well, Bob Carlin used to say I could bend nickels. Now, that's just not true. Yeah, I have strong hands. I was a paper boy when I was a kid, and you had to fold the newspapers, and they were big newspapers in the old days, and it took a lot of finger strength to do it. And I'm a little guy, a uh, little bald guy, but strong hands. Oftentimes, when you had to put a catheter in through a graft in the groin, everybody else would fail, and then I'd just come in and put it in. Just got to push sometimes. You know that, Maureen. <laughs> yeah, 
Exactly. Exactly. You you definitely have taught me that you got to know when to be when to be aggressive. You make me sound reckless, but in fact, no, never. No, no, never, never, never. Just the fact that you know my my intent for sharing that story was to show that there is a grace with which Ernie Ring does procedures. It's this confidence, competence, and ability to expect the next step. I think that that's one of the first things you realize when you scrub in with him is he turns his hand and he says, give me. And you're like, I don't know what to give him. Does he want a wire? Does he want a gauze? Does he want a catheter? But it's because you are not like three steps ahead like he is because he knows that he's going to need this wire in a matter of, you know, several minutes. So it's always, uh, it was always a, a pleasure to, to kind of keep up with him, which was always, you know, a, a fun part of scrubbing together. So in our, in our last few minutes, if you could do it all over again, what are some things that, some boundaries you would have pushed, some things you would have invested in earlier at UCSF, things that you would have brought or things you wouldn't have you know, you wouldn't do, you would have changed or you wouldn't have changed. How would, you, would it have been different? So UCSF is a funny place uh, for vascular disease. There was so much more vascular disease on the East Coast, peripheral vascular disease, than there was in San Francisco. And when I left Penn, I had done probably more balloon angioplasties than anybody on the East Coast except for Barry Kest. And I came to interview at UCSF and the surgeon, the vascular surgeon that I talked to was not at all enthusiastic about uh, doing procedures uh, percutaneously. He strongly believed that they didn't even do fem pops. They did their own angiograms at the time, translumbar, and so they never saw the popliteal artery. They never saw the trifurcation. They never did fem pops. When he said to me, you know, I don't operate for claudication and for limb salvage, I just assume cut the leg off as soon as possible and gets the patient rehabilitated. And I thought, whoa, this is going to be a troublesome place. And it took me uh, a long time to convince them how we could show the anatomy in a way that would make things uh, fixable. We started by taking the angiographic equipment out of their operating room and throwing it away. And then I started doing these gorgeous angiograms that showed what the runoff lo actually looked like and convinced them that they could actually fix femoral artery occlusions. And before very long, they developed the trust in me and we started doing some, some real procedures. But even then, there was no real volume of peripheral vascular disease. What there was a volume was aortic replacements. And that very first aortic endograph, I can't remember the man's name from, from uh, University of uh, Utah, who had conceived of it. He met with me and I talked to him about uh, what he was doing and how he was doing it. And I, I, I told him, you know, you, you're probably going to want to put a guide wire in to put this thing in over and maybe a, a series of, of catheters to position it 
he had no idea how to do it. And we talked him into a fair amount. And in the end, I, I got very angry when we did our first case at UCSF and they sent somebody to uh, monitor how I, uh, my technique. And that anger resulted in me losing access to the original trial. And we kind of ended up behind the eight ball with aortic aneurysm treatment. That's the only thing I've ever been sorry that I mishandled. All the other procedures have, I think, uh, we've been really very fortunate to be doing a large number. We had uh, a very large population of uh, biliary tract disease and liver transplant complications that opened up all sorts of uh, opportunities to uh, do uh, new procedures or modifications of old procedures. So I'm pretty pleased with, with all the years that I spent at UCSF. It was, it was a great pace. We, I worked with good people. I worked with uh, many great surgeons and many trainees who have gone on to wonderful careers and people like Bob Curlin and you and uh, others that have just, you know, a lot of fun to work with and a lot of opportunities to do innovative things. My dear friend, Roy Gordon, was a fellow with me in 1978, and he returned from Israel to work uh, many years with me and then took over when I uh, moved on to other things. So other than the aortic endoprosthesis that I, I should have been more involved with and doing early on, I think the rest of it has gone very well. I would have to agree, but I think I'm a little biased, uh, prejudiced in this case, but I really have enjoyed this uh, session. It's like I said before, it's uh, it's sort of like a once in a lifetime opportunity for me to be able to listen to my mentor, the man that I've idolized for so long. You have accomplished so much in your career and I don't know if the people know, but even outside of IR and being involved in, you know, the society and being instrumental in creating the SIR Foundation internationally, you know, also being very important to UCSF as an institution, you know, already served as the CMO, was instrumental in bringing a lot of issues with regards to quality and safety um, and patient care improvement under visualization. But I think one of the one of the most wonderful things that that is so palpable about him is that he's such a family guy. And he is married to his elementary school sweetheart. And they have uh, beautiful children and grandchildren. I have been lucky to meet them. And you know, really uh, have learned over the years that even though we love our job and it's so important in our career, our professional development, career advancement, never lose sight of of the fact that, you know, your home life is just as important. I remember I had a, a very colicky baby during my fellowship and it was it was something else to be able to come to, to, to work and be able to complain to Ernie Ring that your six-month-old wasn't sleeping and then him telling me that it's all going to work out and that he's going to grow up and he's going to, that I'm going to like him at one point or another is what he would say. 
and recommending that I would bring my family to meetings and uh, bring him to meetings. And, you know, I've taken that advice and it's been really remarkable. One last thing that he taught me that you've taught me, Ernie, is that not every day is the best day of your life. And I think the reason why you've accomplished so much is because you accept that and that you push on to the next day because maybe the next day is a better day, right? I'm glad that you took that advice about every day being not being the best day of your whole life. That was very instrumental in my children's upbringing, reminding them that whatever they were having a bad day. That's right. And I've been at this back table podcast before talking about one of my most horrible days in interventional radiology as a junior attending. And I will still remember how supportive you were on the phone that night. I called you in tears and how you just calmed me and told me what to do. And I know I speak on behalf of Mike Deeks and the the Pascals and the the numerous, numerous other incredible interventional radiologists and radiologists you've trained and whose lives you've touched. We are so lucky to have met you, to have scrubbed in with you, to have had the luxury of being your colleague and have had you as a mentor and a sponsor. And I know that I certainly would have not been where I am today if it hadn't been because of you. So thank you so much. And I love you so much. And I'm sorry I'll take it. But I just had to. I couldn't hold it in anymore. Very sweet. Thank you so much. And I I had a great time talking about the Western Angio and about some of the history of IR in this country. Thank you all for uh, inviting me to participate in this. Love you, Maureen. Thank you, Ernie. 